You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. So here we are. We're in Psalm 34. Um, it's, a, it's a beautiful psalm. Uh, you'll probably recognize some of the words of it as we dive in. I'm not going to make you guys stand back up again because you all just sat down and you're being so good, and I appreciate that, so I won't make you stand up again, right? Psalm 34, though, follow along with me. It'll be uh, on the screen in front of you as well if you don't have it in your Bible. So Psalm 34, here's what it says. The heading in my Bible says, taste and see that the Lord is good. And then the subheading says of David when he changed his behavior before Abimelech so that he drove him out and he went away. Now verse 1, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. O magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord, and he answered me, and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him, and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. O taste, and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. O fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O children, listen to me, and I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are towards the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. So this is the word of God for the people of God this morning. Would you pray with me? Father, um, we just ask that you would come now. Ask that you would speak to us through the preaching of your word. Pray, God, that you would take me in my, not only my my weakness, um, but in in my brokenness, Lord, that you would use me as an instrument in these moments to speak to your people, not my people, but your people. I pray, God, that you would come and speak to your bride, your children, your church. I trust you to do just that. Help us to listen. In Jesus' name, everybody said? Amen. Hey, I want to open this up with a couple of questions that I hope would maybe stick with you. A couple of questions that you might write down. You might make note of, 
And maybe throughout the course of hearing this message and studying this text, or maybe even throughout the course of the rest of the week that's coming up in front of us, maybe you would begin to write out or think of some of the answers to these two questions. Here's those two questions. First of all, in what ways have you experienced the goodness of God lately? In what ways have you experienced the goodness of God lately? Second question. In what ways are you longing to experience the goodness of God? You understand the difference between the two, right? One is past tense. I have experienced the goodness of God, and I'm longing to experience the goodness of God. I want to experience God's goodness in this way or this way. When I think about the ways that I have experienced the goodness of God over the years, I think, first of all, I think about how God called me to himself. I think about how he revealed the work of Jesus to me on my behalf. Right? I think of this first and foremost. That day, that moment, when, when God came and revealed himself to me and said, you belong to me now. You trust in me now. I now give you a new heart. You are now mine. That, that moment when, when God came and saved me, opened up my heart and helped me to trust in him, to believe in him. <laughs> At the end of a bumper <laughs> on a SUV that was traveling 48 miles an hour. That was an explosive moment. I pray that that's not everybody's story in the room, right? I pray that I'm the only one that gets that story because it's not fun. And yet it's beautiful. You don't have to be saved that way to have experienced God's good and saving grace in your life. Your story might be that you were saved coming out the womb somehow. That might be your story. At the end of the day, God has richly blessed me. And not just with the gift of salvation. Starts there for sure. Uh, but over the course of my uh, um, my years of following Jesus, he's continuously set me free, little bit by little bit by little bit, one small step at a time, from the presence and the power of deep roots of sin, um, addiction, brokenness, still in the process of doing that work today. It's not like, the problem with believers is this, let me say this, the problem with Christians is we think it's a destination. You think, oh, I was born a believer, I repented when I jumped out of the womb, and I arrived. It's the stupidest thing we could ever do. Just think that way, right? Whether it's when you jumped out of the womb or whether it was you got saved 15 minutes ago, we think repentance is a destination, and repentance is not complete until you're in heaven. You're not going to be whole, no matter how much you pretend. No matter how many good things you do to make yourself look good. No matter how often you smile that smile and say everything's okay. The reality is, from this point until the point that we walk into heaven, we are in a process of something called sanctification, where God is continuously molding and shaping and transforming. So I love that part of God's blessing, his goodness, that he continues that work, and he doesn't discontinue it until the day that it's complete, like when you're doing construction projects. My son Lewis, I don't know where he went. I don't see. He must be in with the kids, maybe. My son Lewis is doing work on the church. He's doing 
bathrooms, because our bathrooms are grody. Everybody say amen. amen. Okay, but they're going to be beautiful. Everybody say amen. amen. There, we're all awake. They're going to be beautiful because Lewis is doing work on it, and he's not going to stop the work until it's complete. There's nothing more frustrating than a half-finished project, right? And, and that's part of the angst of living this side of heaven, is there's some frustration in the fact that you and I are not done yet. And we're looking forward to a day when we will be done. So the beauty about God is that we get to experience that goodness of knowing God. Is that He continuously does that work in your life. And you're going to have days where you're like, man, seriously, I'm here again? 15 years into following Jesus or 15 minutes into following Jesus and I really thought I had that licked. And here I am crying out to God again for some help. Right? It's part of the process. I love, I love experiencing God in that way. And yet at the same time, I still long for more. Right? I still desire more of God and more of His goodness and more of His work in my life. A couple of things that I wrote down in answer to that second question is I really long to see all of my kids follow Jesus. I have seven of them. So the odds are stacked against me. But even if the odds are stacked against me, I know that my God is greater than that. So I long to see all of my kids follow Jesus. I long to see uh, this church um, reach a point of being planted. We're still in the process of planting now almost 10 years in. Not quite completely rooted. We'd like to see us completely rooted financially as well as from a leadership perspective one day. I, uh, I long to see more ministry. I long to see more ministries launched that would re reach into some of the darkest areas of the culture and the community. Uh, we're sitting in a short staff meeting before coming in to do church this morning, and it was really cool hearing the stories around the room of different areas of ministry that many of our people here are involved in. Uh, and that's powerful. And the cool thing about that is it doesn't always happen overnight. There we are 10 years in, and I'm starting to hear these stories. It's deeply encouraging. I want to see more. 24,000 people in Hastings and 70% don't belong to a Bible-believing, gospel-preaching church. It's roughly 19,000 people, if I did the math right. Or 17. It's a lot of people. There's a lot of dark areas of our culture and community that need to be reached into. So I long for that. I long to see that kind of the goodness of God taking place more. That's been some of my experience of God's like, faithful goodness, and that is some of my longing to see and to experience more of His goodness in the future. And that, that's really what Psalm 34 is all about. Really, the core nugget of Psalm 34 is that taste and see that the Lord is good. Psalm 34 is about experiencing as well as longing for the goodness of God. When you read Psalm 34 and you break it down, there's really two major parts to it, okay? The, the two major parts are this. The first part is just a song of joy in, in, in verses 1 through 10. And then the second part is a message of instruction in verses 11 through 22. 
When you look at the heading of the psalm, just under the, the title of it, right? The heading of the psalm tells us that it's written by David. David wrote this psalm shortly after his encounter with a dude named King Abimelech. And, and if you were to look at 1 Samuel chapter 21, you'll find this story. And here's the summary. In 1 Samuel 21, David is doing what? He's running for his life from King Saul. Who's King Saul? Well, King Saul was very much like David's dad. He's very much a father figure to David. An older man that young David looked up to at one point, like one of his sons. King Saul, that father-like figure, he's now hunting David. You catch that? Can you imagine if a father figure was hunting you down to kill you? Saul is hunting David down. He wants to murder him. Why? Because of his jealousy. He wants to murder him because he's jealous that David's military success and his public popularity is better than his. People would sing songs about David and Saul. Saul's killed his thousands. David's killed his millions. Actually, I think it's hundreds and thousands. But anyways, the point is, David is much better than Saul. People like him. They look to him for leadership more than they do Saul. Saul's just sitting under this hat of authority. I am the king. Thou must listen. David, on the other hand, is leading from a place of relationship and trust with those people. He's popular. Now his father figure wants to kill him. So, David... David, in 1 Samuel 21, he's running for his life. I doubt if any of us in the room have ever literally ran for our life from someone. But I don't doubt that many of us know what it feels like to fear for our lives. Ever feared for your life? Been afraid the next moment you might be dead? David is literally running for his life from King Saul. And the crazy thing is he winds up in this little town called Gath. Okay, So I don't know if it would be like Trumbull or Donovan or Junietta or Blue Hill or Harvard. I'm going to say Gath is probably like Harvard. That's just what I think. <coughs> winds up in this little town called Gath. What's the significance of that? Just raise your hand if you know what the significance of this little town named Gath is. Yes. Okay, there's a few. Right on. He winds up in this little town named Gath. You know what Gath is? It's the hometown of like a national hero named Goliath. Like, I love Clint Eastwood movies. I just whistled, so this just came to mind. I love Clint Eastwood movies. I don't know, can somebody whistle that? How's that go? The good, the bad, and the ugly? I'm pretty sure when David shows up in the town of Gath, the hometown of Goliath, who, by the way, is dead. Not alive right now. He's dead. And there's a certain way that he died, right? We know the story. Who killed Goliath? Everybody? <laughs> you know, I, I don't know how David missed the signs on the road. Gath. One mile ahead. Oh, I'm just going to keep on trucking. No, I, they didn't have signs back then. Can you imagine being so afraid for your life that you don't even pay attention to what town you're headed to and you head 
to the hometown of a national hero whom you murdered. <laughs> oh, man. And the story gets better than that. Don't forget that when David killed Goliath, it wasn't just the three stones. All the stone did was knock, knock Goliath out, if I remember rightly. Right? We know how David killed Goliath. He grabs Goliath's own sword and hacks his head off. That's what he does. And then David keeps the sword. That's crazy. So David walks into Goliath's hometown, right? Big old bully that David had murdered with his own sword on the battlefield. That is a huge disgrace to the memory of Goliath, to be killed with your own weapon, to have it taken away and to be killed with it. You don't let that happen. You kill yourself before you let that happen. And yet Goliath got his sword taken away and got murdered with it. David walks into that town carrying the very sword that he killed Goliath with. And don't forget, he's running for his life from King Saul. That's a scary moment. I can't imagine the fear. I mean, I can imagine fear, right? We can all imagine fear, agreed? But that kind of fear, I can't imagine it, especially when David realized his predicament. Speaking of fear, in Psalm 34, David mentions the word fear uh, and trouble and affliction no less than eight times. Eight times. He mentions those kinds of words. And David, I think, is deeply afraid because he knew that he'd gotten himself into some deep trouble, that he's about to face some really hard affliction if he doesn't do something drastic and if the Lord doesn't come to his rescue. So you know what David does in this situation? In Gath, the hometown of the dude he murdered, carrying his own sword, King Saul breathing down his neck, what does David do? Well, 1 Samuel 21 tells us that David acted like a madman. <laughs> Anybody ever act like a madman or a madwoman? Every day. I'm with you, Dave. He acted insane. He pretended to be insane. He starts drooling all over himself. Now, I drool when I sleep. So do my kids. <laughs> That's always right. So does my, no, I won't. My wife would never do that. You don't have a sword, do you? You're not going to hurt me afterwards. <laughs> and he, he starts drooling all over himself. Scratches weird things into the door of the gate of the castle, either with his fingernails or with some sharp object. I, I envision it was his fingernails. I'm not quite sure. I don't think the text makes it clear. Starts scratching some weird things in the front gate of the castle or into the gate of, his, of you know, where he's locked up at. And then, and then all the king's guys, they bring David. They're like, look who we got. We got David. He killed Goliath. He's even got his sword. And David is like just acting stupid. I'm, I'm assuming he's like speaking gibberish. And the king in this story loses interest in the whole thing and boots David out of town completely unharmed. Like, let that sink in. That's nuts. He just basically says, hey, I already have enough madmen running around. What do I need to have another one for? Get him out of my sight. I'm bored. 
David. And David, to his credit, gives all the credit to the Lord for delivering him. And not only that, but he also invites, in this psalm, David invites everyone to to join him in singing with joy about God's miraculous deliverance. And then, following that up, he invites everyone to listen to his words of instruction, which fascinates the ever-living heck out of me because if you know David's story he's not only this like this hero who kills a giant but he's also this dude who's like I think one of the worst sinners in the scriptures with his sin and yet he has the gall to stand in front of people on a stage in front of a pulpit and say you should listen to me which for me as a preacher it hits home right and that should hit home for any of us Ultimately, I think what David knows, David knows that I think all of us, we desire to have a really good, a really long-lasting life without a lot of trouble. Anybody want to join me with that? Like, who wants to have a bad life? Okay. Who wants to have a good life? Five of you. I don't know where the rest of you are at today, but I'm going to roll with you. (laughs) Nice lawn, trouble-free. I mean, isn't this the American dream? Right? Uh, what is it? Uh, Two-stall garage, 2.5 kids. That's the, good, that's the good American life. I don't know. I have no idea why the stat says 2.5 kids. It just maybe means two kids and pregnant. Maybe that's the half. I don't get it. At any rate, it's a two-stall garage, great house that you own, vacation every year, a great retirement plan so that you can, you can survive and live comfy and pick up your seashells off the shore, right? John Piper preaches that message. That's the American dream. And, and, and it's not just the American dream. The reality is we all have this kind of longing, and we think that God has shined his blessings upon us. God is definitely good if we can attain these kinds of things, right? Right, certificate on the wall, best spouse in the world, most obedient kids, great car, two motorcycles in the garage, if you're me. I mean, we got our list of what we think proves that we are experiencing God's goodness, that we're tasting and seeing that God is good. And the proof in our minds oftentimes is a long life, a trouble-free life. David knows that. He says that in verse 12. Right? If you look at verse 12, he asks, What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? What kind of question is that? Right? You read that question, it's like, uh, What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see? That's a rhetorical question. It's meant to elicit the right answer. The answer is, what, Oh, every man and woman. Every man and woman, that's what we want. It's not wrong to want that. Sometimes the pursuit of that is wrong. The pursuit of that is wrong when we destroy our marriages to get there. When we don't follow through on our commitments to get there. Right? When we overspend to get there. Like there's all sorts of ways the process becomes sinful, but wanting a life like that, not not bad at all. Would love to build a cabin in the Black Hills and move there. Man, beautiful, beautiful country. Love to. Not wrong. If you got the cash flow to do so. 
And if you haven't melted down your life to do so. David's asking this rhetorical question meant to highlight the fact that all of us want to have a good, lasting life on this earth without a ton of trouble, a ton of affliction. But David also knows he's got to be a man who knows that life here on this earth has been broken, severely broken by the curse of sin. And therefore, we're all going to experience trouble. We're all going to experience affliction. We don't get through this life unscathed. We don't get through this life with no broken bones, if you will, to use that as an illustration. Because we experience our own sin and brokenness, and we also experience other people's sin against us as well. You know what it's like to experience that, right? Your own sin, as well as other people's sin against you. This is why David extends an invitation to everyone around him to sing with joy and to listen to his instructions. See, ultimately the Lord here, the Lord is actually extending this invitation through Psalm 34. It's an invitation. God wants you to know him. He wants you to see him. He wants you to taste His goodness. He wants you to fear Him or respect Him. He wants you to rejoice in Him. Why? Because He and He alone, God, and God alone is the one who blesses and protects all who trust in Him. That's the truth of this text. See, when you and I, when we come to a place where we know God, when we come to a place where we see God, these are very experiential. Think, think sensory, right? These are senses. When you sense, you're experiencing. One commentator says, I could tell you all day long about how juicy, how smoky, how fulfilling a great ribeye steak is. And you can walk away and you can say, man, I just heard this juicy, smoky, really fulfilling steak, but you will not be able to share that completely until you experience it. Now, for those of you who don't like steak, it's okay. I'm still praying that you will go to heaven. <laughs> when we come to a place where we, where we know God, where we see God, where we, where we taste God's goodness, where we fear Him appropriately, where we rejoice in Him. When that's happening, what do you do? What do you do? What do you do when you experience God's deliverance in such a profoundly personal way like David did? Do the same thing you do when you experience that really good steak or your favorite food, whatever it may be. My wife says raising canes. You ever want to get her some of her favorite food? <laughs> or you drive through somewhere and you experience some really scenic country. There is some really scenic country in Nebraska, surprisingly. There is. There are some hills. There are some curves. And there are some beautiful fields. When they're, when they're like a full-grown and it's either wheat, wheat, it's not wheat, it's wheat. The H is second and it's silent, but I always say it that way, wheat. Or the corn, right, when the corn is tall, you know, knee high by the 4th of July is the phrase. And you see that. 
It's just beauty in the spring or, or in the fall even. You experience something like that. You want to invite others to come experience that with you, don't you? See, this is what David is doing. This is why he invites us to sing with him and then to listen to his instructions. So now that we're through the introduction, let's look at the text. <laughs> I'm kidding. Look at this first part, David's invitation to sing with joy. Just, just, my, my prayer is that in the midst of just hearing this, that you would experience the goodness of God. And that you, you would identify some of those places where you would begin to long more and more for the goodness of the presence of God. See, in this invitation to sing with joy, verses 1 through 10, what do you see? David is simply inviting us to worship with him, right? Worship with me. And then he shares his own testimony of God's deliverance in his life in verses 4 through 7. And then he invites us to come and to experience God for ourselves in verses 8 through 10. Here's the reality about David in these verses. David's heart, think about your heart. What does your heart constantly overflow with? Frustration, shame, anger, laziness. I don't know what it is. What does your heart usually overflow with. David's heart here is constantly overflowing with songs of praise. And his songs of praise aren't all about himself. They're not all about sloppy wet kisses and reckless love that's not really reckless because it's actually steadfast. And I always want to find ways to get that in my sermons so that we listen to good theology in songs. When David sings this song of joy. What's he doing? He's bragging on God. He's bragging on God's goodness. He's bragging on his faithfulness. He wants everyone to join with him in magnifying and exalting the name of God together. Magnifying. You know the difference between a telescope and a, and a, and a magnifying glass, right? The telescope takes what looks really small and makes it look bigger. But a magnifying glass takes what's really small and makes it... no. What's really small makes it look bigger. And the telescope takes the big thing and makes it look smaller. There, I should get that straight, right? <laughs> We're not called to make a small God uh, look big. We're called to take this big, massive God and reveal him in front of people so they can actually see him, not to make him look smaller. David wants to exalt the name of God with everyone around him. This is not a picture, okay? This is not a picture of this kind of like a boring, but dead, senseless, no emotion, timid kind of a scening. Like, God, you're so good. It's not like this small, timid thing. The image I get here is of someone singing super loud. All of his energy, right? Why? Because they've just been delivered from a near-death experience. Anybody ever had a near-death experience? Maybe that's my problem. I had a near-death experience, right? Maybe that's the issue. When you have a near-death experience, you get kind of jacked up afterwards. And you're excited to let people know, I'm alive. I'm alive. This, this kind of deliverance, the kind of deliverance where you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you were about to die... But then God reached down and rescued you. That's the kind of deliverance that has moved David to this kind of a loud, exuberant, joy-filled song. Now the reality is extroverts 
need to quiet it down sometimes. And introverts, you gotta quit sucking your thumb in the corner. Like, that's all there is to it. But the reality is, extroverts and introverts, we have a tendency to use our personalities as excuses for not being excited about the work of God in our lives. Has God delivered you? You know, you should be excited about that. That should come out loudly. I realize that's an extrovert on a stage telling you that. So let the Spirit shave the rough edges off of that as much as He needs to, and I'll trust Him to do that work, okay? David here explains his darkest hour of need. And when he explains that in his darkest hour of need, his, in his greatest moment of fear, what did he do? He sought the Lord, not like the Lord was lost. You ever hear that joke? Right? Mom calls the pastor, you got to get over here and talk to my son. He's in the closet and he won't come out. Pastor shows up, Timmy, what are you doing? I'm looking for Jesus. You told me to go see Jesus. I thought he was lost in the closet somewhere with all the other junk. <laughs> Jesus doesn't need to be found. <laughs> it's funny because the reality is Jesus said he came to seek and to save. <laughs> but yet David says, I sought the Lord. He sought the Lord. He called out to him for help. It means that the condition of his heart was turned towards the Lord. Can I just ask you, like, what is it in your life that you have allowed to harden your heart from seeking and even enjoying to seek the presence of God? What's gotten in the way of that? Sometimes our hearts are so hard and we cover it up with our little smiles. And the reality is something got really deep down inside of there that we just haven't repented of yet. We haven't confessed and we haven't taken appropriate steps to move forward to actually seek God. God, it's not like God needs to be found. He's always available. David sought the Lord, called out to him for help. God delivered him miraculously. He heard David's cries. He saved David out of all his troubles. At the end of the day, anyone else who looks to God, David says here, is going to experience this same kind of deliverance. Anyone who experiences that same kind of deliverance will never experience the shame of being left alone to die in their fear. Why? Because the presence of God surrounds everyone who trusts in Him. This is that phrase, the angel of the Lord encamps about. It's a picture of God's presence in and around you for all of eternity. See, I... Some of the places that I go for ministry, some of the places that you step into for ministry, whether that's in your school classroom, or that's in a class in a mental health department, that's driving a truck to deliver beer. Some of those places that you step into where you are called to do ministry, you can't walk in there without the presence of the Lord encamped around you. You will die. All there is to it. And then your job will become nothing more than a means to make a paycheck so that you can retire early or a little bit late. You need the presence of God with you. And David says, you know, the presence of God was with me because I sought him. And, I, and when I came to him, he delivered me. And I experienced this thing where I went from being in the grave to now alive. It's powerful.
And what David wants more than anything else, I think, is for you and I to experience that same kind of deliverance and joy. This is why he invites us then, like I said earlier, taste and see that the Lord is good. He knows beyond a shadow of a doubt that you and I will be truly blessed, not just happy in the American worldly sense of 2.5 kids and a couple of cars or bikes or whatever in the garage and the two-story house. Knows you're going to be really blessed if you find shelter in the presence of God. You're going to find shelter in the presence of God and you'll be truly blessed if you fear Him, if you respect Him more than anyone or anything else in all of creation. He uses this great illustration about lions. He's talking about this to bring it home. To bring home this song. He says, hey, you know, even the lions, think of a lion. Roar. (laughs) Powerful. They're at the top of the food chain. Okay? At the top of the food chain. Somewhere just like right under God, I think. The top of the food chain on this earth. But even a lion eventually gets hungry. Even a lion eventually gets needy. He uses that illustration to let you know even a lion gets there, but you, if you trust in the Lord, you'll never be left in need of anything of eternal value. When I find myself frustrated because of the things of this world, the things that I experience in this life that don't seem good, where I begin to question the goodness of God, like, hey, I thought my kid almost died. Doesn't seem very good. Or my kid just rebelled. Or my wife and I just had a really bad argument this week. Or I just lost my mind on somebody and went back to a place that I haven't lived in for 15 years. This doesn't seem that good. Or a tree falls on your house. I can walk through all sorts of things where I have been tempted or have thought sinfully in the moment, this cannot be God's goodness. Right? You know what I'm talking about, right? You've been there, haven't you? If you and I trust in the Lord, we'll never be left in in need of anything of eternal value. It's no wonder David invites us to sing for joy. He doesn't just invite us to sing for joy. He also invites us to listen to his instructions. Listen to his sermon. The instructions aren't just mere opinions. Instructions are communicated as truths. They are truths that are meant to be learned and applied. They're not supposed to bounce off the frontal lobe. They're supposed to make it in through the mind and down into the heart and back out through our behavior and our lifestyle. David's instructions here simply are meant to help us to learn about the fear of the Lord in verses 11 through 14. And then we're to learn why we should fear the Lord in verses 15 through 20. See, fearing or respecting the Lord more than anything or anyone else, that's something that has to be taught, caught, and learned. Taught, caught, and learned. Half the problem with us is we don't like catching things. We don't have a catcher's glove. We like to be entertained, oftentimes. <laughs> Tell me, I love entertainment. I love entertainment. There's some seriously, awesomely entertaining things that I like to have in my life. And yet, when it comes to learning to fear God, it must be taught, caught, and learned. Because of sin, we don't naturally do this. We don't naturally fear or respect the Lord above all else. We are weak. We are broken, we are sinful, we are prone to do what? 
wander off. Into what? What kind of field do we usually wander off into? Self-sufficiency and self-gratification. I can do this and this feels really good. We wander off into those fields and we feed there. This is why David invites us to learn the fear of the Lord. Verse 11. Then he describes what the fear of the Lord actually looks like in a person's life. And here's what he essentially says. Check it out. He essentially says that if you really want to experience a long and happy life, what should you do? Get a fifth job? Buy a fourth Harley. No. He didn't say that. He says, you've got to fear God. Well, how do you fear God? He explains it. Verses 12 through 14. You fear God by resisting and rejecting evil and deceptive thoughts and words. As you commit to doing what is right and commit to doing what is good by pursuing what? Pursuing peace in every situation. Who are the peacemakers in the room? Anybody? I know, know Christy is a peacemaker. Thank God Christy is a peacemaker. Y'all can say Amen. Joe's not naturally a peacemaker, and y'all can probably say amen. No, you can say amen. I won't fight with you over it. <laughs> you catch that, right? <laughs> I'm not naturally a peacemaker. And you know what? There's a time when you're going to need people that aren't peacemakers to fight something. And David was one of those. <laughs> Dude's a warrior. A bloody warrior. And yet, he recognizes as a fighter, peacemaking is really good to pursue. This is part of fearing God, is to pursue peace in every situation. He also answers this question, why you should fear God. Now, you ever ask that, why should I fear? Well, because he's God. Duh. Move on. No, I, he camps out on it for just a moment, right? Like, Why should you fear God this way? Here's what David basically says in verses 15 to 16. He says, you should fear God by resisting what is evil, by pursuing what is good, because, why? Drum roll, ready, set. Because God sees everything, right? Because he hears the cries of the righteous. <coughs> he hears the cries of the righteous. And God will set himself against the wicked. That's scary. He will wipe the memory of the wicked off the face of the planet. That's scary in an appropriate way. Here's the flip side of that. God also loves to hear the cries of the righteous. God loves to deliver the righteous from their trouble. God is always near to those whose hearts have been broken, and He's in the business of saving those who have been crushed. Ever had your heart broken? Ever been crushed by some circumstance? The reality of this broken world we live in, right? <coughs> well, not only does David testify here the way that God delivered him from his afflictions without a single bone broken, but he also, as he says that, he makes a prophetic utterance, a prophetic statement. It's an announcement, really, about the coming Christ who's going to endure many afflictions. But he's going to come out the other side of the cross with an empty tomb in complete and unbroken victory over Satan, sin, and death. That's verses 19 through 20. 
<clears throat> David testifies to what God had done for him, and in so doing, makes a prophetic statement about Jesus. And even the Apostle John in John 19.36 realizes that. And he says that Jesus, what David said here, was fulfilled in the work of Jesus at the cross and the empty tomb. That's the answer to why you should fear God. He sees everything. He hears everything. He will wipe out the wicked. And he will save those who have trusted in the work of his son, Jesus, who annihilated Satan, sin, and death. <clears throat> so in conclusion you study this psalm all the way through <clears throat> you learn this it, this psalm is meant to make our hearts sing with joy it meant to make our hearts ready to learn meant to bring us to a point of decision really see the final thing that David says the last two verses, he says, hey, there's only two ways to live. After singing this song, after hearing this message preached, there's only two ways to live. You can either live your life fearing God, or you can live your life not fearing God. That's verses 21 and 22. Listen to these words. Affliction will slay the wicked. Affliction will slay the wicked. And those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of His servants, and none of those who take refuge in Him will be condemned. There's only two ways to live. One way, wicked, afflicted, doomed for all of eternity. That's what David is saying. Or, second way to live, righteous, serving God as you find shelter in God's redeeming work for all of eternity. Now here's the other thing. There's only one who chose the right way to live. You know who that is? His name is Jesus. He's the only one that was truly without any kind of hindrance, any kind of bondage. There was no sin in him. He was perfect. Listen, even the moment that you said yes to Jesus and trusted in him, there was some sin laced in that. Even your decision is laced with a little bit of sin. Namely, for most of us, it's like a get out of hell free card thing, right? It's self preservation. Jesus was the only one who chose the right way to live. And he did it perfectly. And the reality for you and I is that when you and I submit to Jesus as our Lord and our Savior, what we are doing is we're accepting his perfect righteousness. We're, we're confessing, we're, we're repenting of our own unrighteousness, our own filth, our own failures. And then, and then what we're doing is we're trying to live in such a way that we would serve God. And we're asking Him, empower me, give me your spirit, make my heart come alive that I might serve you with vigorous joy. As I find shelter at the foot of the cross, as I find strength in the empty tomb, as I find hope in the promise of eternity in heaven, that's what it means to choose to follow Jesus 
It's as though the Spirit of God is choosing to do that in and through you. And listen, this is what I think. I think this is what it means to experience the goodness of God in all of its fullness. This is what I think it means to taste and to to see that, that God is good. And that's my prayer for all of us, that that every one of you hearing this message would come to that place. I don't care if you came out of the womb talking about Jesus. I pray that you would come to a place of absolute trust in the work of our crucified, risen, returning Savior. My prayer is that you would experience this simultaneous thing, this this terrifying fear of imminent death. You could die right now. You could be eternally separated from God apart from trusting in Christ. That kind of fear causes us to respect and stand in awe of the God who not only could vanquish us from His presence forever because of our rebellion, but then simultaneously with the very same hand holds you out of the flames of hell, right? And says, behold, Behold the cross. For my son perfectly came and died in your place. And I give you my spirit. And I give you the faith to move forward. I think that's what it means to taste and to see that God is good. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, for the message of the gospel. Pray, God, that in these closing moments that you would come and continue to minister to us by the power of your spirit. Lead us to the foot of cross. Remind us the power of the empty tomb. Still within us the hope of heaven. Help us to taste and see that you are good. In Jesus' name, amen. You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com.